Queen Victoria was England's longest ruling monarch. In 1837, at 18 years of age, she became queen and she ruled for 64 years until she died in 1901. But when she was young, Victoria didn't even know that she was going to be Queen of England. She was, she was shielded from that fact so that she wouldn't grow up spoiled. Um, but when a teacher finally did let her discover for itself that she would one day be Queen of England, Victoria's response was, then I will be good. You see, she understood that she needed to live her life based on the royal calling to which she was to fulfil. And we do too. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You you know you've been called to something higher, don't you? You know that to become a Christian means that you have a holy calling and the way that you live your life will be a reflection of that. It's a calling not only of great blessing, but it's also a calling of great responsibility. It's a calling to live differently, to live a life of hope, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of integrity, a life of holiness, a life of love. You know what I'm actually describing? Christ-likeness. That, that's our calling, is to live in Christ-likeness. So how do we get there? I mean, that, that's all very good and nice, but anybody who actually knows me says, well, Michael, you're a long way from being Christ-like. Um, how do we actually get there? Usually when I go for a ride on my push bike, uh, I, usually actually, I actually prefer to ride by myself. Uh, because it's really hard to find somebody who's going to be equally matched to, to your speed that you want to ride. And I find sometimes I might go for a ride with somebody and, and it's like, yeah, they're just riding a bit too slow, so I, you know, I might ride for ages, but the heart rate never actually gets up and so sort of think, yeah, okay, well, it's, I'm putting all this work in, but it's really not doing me a lot of good at the moment. But, but as is more increasingly common these days, they're just too good for me and they bust me. <laughs> I might be able to keep up from for maybe 15 or 20 kilometres, but after that they, uh, they just bust me and I just, they leave me behind. So I usually find it's better just for me to ride by myself. And sometimes... Christians feel that to move on spiritually, that they feel that they have a need to shake off other people. They have to distance themselves from other Christians because they feel that those other Christians are holding them back. Or maybe they feel that those other Christians are too far advanced for them. Or that they're, they're too holy for me. Or no, they're not holy enough. They're too spiritual for me. Or no, they're not spiritual enough. Well, today's Bible reading is about growing up. It's about maturing in Christ. And sadly, sometimes we get it into our heads that the best way for us to grow up is to distance ourselves from other disciples of Christ because we might feel that they're holding us back. They're not as spiritual as I am. They're not as holy as I am. They're not as committed as I am. And if today's lesson is about growing up in Christ... The first point of the lesson is the best place for any of us to grow up is in a family. Nobody's going to argue with that, are you? You all know the best place for a child to grow up is in a family, yeah? 
And I'm going to say to you, the best place for a Christian to grow up is in the family of Christ. We are certainly called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But that walk is not a solitary march. It's a walk together. It's a walk in company with other disciples of Christ. And Paul describes it as being a walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we journey together and my role and your role is not for us to grow up by ourselves at the expense of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to grow up together. And sometimes you'll be helping me to grow up in Christ and sometimes I'll be helping you to grow up in Christ and sometimes you'll be helping each other to grow up in Christ. And we'll be doing this as a family, leaving nobody behind. And for us to be able to stick together in this, we must practice these things that Paul is talking about. Humility, gentleness, patience. We must bear with one another in love. We know that families don't work unless we bring these things into a family. Hey, humility, patience, bearing with one another in love. And it's the same in the church family. Same in the family of Christ. And, he says, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you get that? We should be eager. That means really, really keen to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I take this command very seriously. You know, whenever I've ever heard this passage preached on before when I've been sitting in church, it's always... The, the, the preacher's always taken the line of, of maintaining the unity in the one little congregation. All right, so if we did that here, we'd, we'd be talking to, today about developing and maintaining a unity within our, within our nice little bush disciples gathering. And that's a very easy and tempting thing to preach on because that's, that's what's at a lot of our hearts is trying trying to you know, have a nice congregation and a nice fellowship that we get together in. But I think it's more than that. Does anyone know who the letter to the Ephesians, what the, what the actual address is on this letter? Right at the start, he gives us the address. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right, that's the address. That's who this letter is written to. Paul wrote this letter to the saints, to the holy ones, to the Christians in a particular locality, Ephesus. If he was writing to that that same letter to us, the address that he would write on it wouldn't be to the saints who are in Bush Disciples. The letter's address would be to the saints who are in St George. and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a much bigger thing, isn't it? That's a much, much bigger unity than a unity in our own chosen little huddle, isn't it? It's a much more difficult thing to comprehend. For many years, I've believed very strongly 
that there are way too many divisions in the Christian church. And there are way too many divisions in the Christian church, even in this, in this district here. And my heart's desire is for the saints, for the Christians, for the holy ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus in this district to be one. I mean, we can go out to a place like Begonia and there's people of a whole heap of different denominations. They come together and there in that district they are one. They have a, a unity of faith, a unity of belief, a unity of worship. You know, people who aren't Christians are usually the first ones to, to ask the obvious questions. You know, like if you Christians love one another, you know, what, what, why can't you even get on? What, you know, what, why in a town of St George, like we've got one football team, we've got one cricket team, but why, why aren't there just one church? And sadly, I believe a large reason for this is because we are not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, if this is so, then why is there not one church in this district? Why do we have nine And you'd have every right to say to me, Michael, you believe that there should be only one church? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. You left a church and started another one. Haven't you added to the problem? Well, I'll get you to hold on to that question uh, because we'll be coming back to it later. I'm, I'm not going to avoid it, I promise you. I'm not going to dodge that question. We'll come back to it. But if we don't move on now, we're not going to get to it. A few weeks ago, we talked about the grace to become a minister of God. And I said, yeah, I'm happy to be known as a minister of God, but but only if you also understand that you also are a minister of Christ. I'm not the only minister here. You two are ministers by the grace of God. And we talked about how none of us are more important than anybody else. We just have different roles. Well, here in this reading, Paul lists here five specific roles that we find within the Christian church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Now, if we're all ministers, actually, I was actually just talking with Roy this morning before church happened about um, a grandson, is it, that, that's, going, that's going to go to theological college. Okay, now I don't know if he's going to be a minister or a pastor or whatever title he's going to be, but... Who knows? But he's going off to theological college. Now, if we're all going to be ministers, well, we've probably got to have some kind of ministerial training, don't you think? Now, that doesn't mean we all have to go off to Bible college, but it means we have to have some kind of training. We need to be equipped. And Paul says that God has given these people, these ones here, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, when you become a Christian, you don't just instantly know everything about Christ. 
You're not just instantly skilled in everything about presenting the gospel or whatever. You don't just instantly know how to live. You don't just instantly become a great Bible scholar and a repository of all godly truth. We need to be taught. We need to be built up. We need to be trained. And apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers are the ones who do this training. So what do each of these roles look like? Because they are quite distinct, these roles. The apostles were the eyewitnesses to Christ. They were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they testified about Christ and they wrote it down in the Bible. They had what we call apostolic authority. And if you want to know what the apostles taught, where are you going to find that? It's not a hard question in the Bible. Read the Bible and you'll find what the apostles taught. They had the authority to teach the truth about Christ and salvation. And so if anybody ever teaches you something which is contrary to the apostolic witness that we find in the Bible, well, just just don't listen to it. It's a load of rubbish. And that's why when the JWs come knocking on your door, you don't have to listen to them. You don't have to be convinced by them because they've changed their Bibles and they've taken away what the apostles have taught about Christ and they've come up with their own ideas. That, and that's just one example. The second role is that of the prophets. Sometimes somebody with a gift of prophecy can deliver a word from the Lord, a specific word to a specific person or to a specific church for a specific situation, which when heeded leads the recipient into a deeper understanding of God's will and purpose. Now, that would be a good thing for God to speak Specific words to us, don't you think? Yeah. But as you can imagine, if if somebody should presume to speak as God's mouthpiece, that could be open to horrendous abuses. And we're told in the Bible time and time again to beware of false prophets. And sometimes we're very, very... Be wearing, is that right? Wary, very, very wary of false prophets, and so we just go, well, well, forget about prophecies. We, we prophecies don't happen anymore. A lot of people will tell you that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that in these times, prophecies will be here. And there once was a time when it was just a just a very few prophets who, who, who the um, the Holy Spirit of God came upon and they spoke. But it says, you know, in the later times, there's going to be many people. Because the Holy Spirit will be in all of us who would speak prophecies. And so we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I had to explain that saying to my boys the other day, by the way. Does anybody not know what it means to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Roy knows what it means, surely. (laughs) Okay, Roy doesn't know what it means. Okay, to throw the baby out with the bathwater is, the bathwater is yucky, so we tip it out. And it's like, oh, but there's something really good in there. There's a baby. So we want to save the baby. Then we throw the bathwater out. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard that saying. Hmm. 
Well, I just did. Keeping the baby, throwing out the mother. We're about to give you an example with prophecies. If God is going to speak a word through a prophecy, that's something which is very valuable, don't you think? The word of God spoken to us is wonderful. Um, so let's not just say all prophecies are finished, let's forget about all prophecies, because then we're going to miss out on something really special from God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 speaks about this. Verse 19 it says, Do not quench the Spirit. You know, if the Holy Spirit of God is burning and it's hot, it, it, it's, it's great. And sometimes we can go, oh, no, no, God, I don't want to, oh, that's all too scary for me. And we pour water on it, you know? Whereas God's wanting to do something amazing. And we, we, we should never quench the fire of the Spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, Abstain from every form of evil. So, if God was to give to somebody here a word of prophecy, if somebody here just had this feeling inside, I don't know where this is coming from, but I just really feel that God has a message for somebody and feels they need to share it. They share it with us and we test it to see if it's from God. Does this line up with the scriptures? Does this sound like something that would be from God? Or is it against the scriptures? And if we believe it is from God, we receive it. If not, we reject it. So that's the prophets. Thirdly, there are the evangelists. Thank God for the evangelists, eh? Um, Somebody led you to Christ. That person, in some way, was an evangelist. It might have been your parents. It might have been your Sunday school teacher or your RE teacher might have been a Christian friend or a Billy Graham type person or maybe it was on Christian TV or Christian radio or maybe, maybe somebody came through town with a, with a Christian concert or something and gave a bit of a message. But somewhere, at some time, you were touched by the message of Christ and you believed and you put your trust in Christ. Thank God for the evangelists. Thank God for those ones who got you started off in your Christian life. And if you can think of that person now, maybe the Savo when you go home, why don't you ring them up and say, hey, you know what, you mightn't even know this, but what you did all those years ago was it really touched me. And I've, I actually think it's as a result of that that I'm following Christ today. That'd be a nice gesture, hey? Okay, so that's the evangelists. Then there are the shepherds and the teachers. An evangelist will have a major impact on you, but their ministry is only really for a very short time. Um, After the evangelists have done their work, the shepherds and the teachers begin their lifelong ministry of building us up. And often these are the same people. A shepherd is someone who guards the flock. But they're more than that. My understanding is that a shepherd really has two roles. They care for and love the flock and they guard the flock. And the flock needs to be guarded. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And a shepherd is someone who guards against this happening. It tries to help us to stay on the straight path. A shepherd is someone who, when one of the flock says, you know what, I've actually just heard this new teaching and it sounds really good. I've never heard this before. And, and, oh, it's just making a major difference to the way I understand things. And the shepherd is the one who, when, when one of the flock says that, goes, okay, well, let's look in our Bibles and we'll see what, what the scriptures say about this. And, okay, is this from God or is this not from God? And sometimes it might be from God and sometimes it might not be. But the shepherd is the one who helps guard against the wrong things coming in. And that's why the shepherds and the teachers often go together. Because it's really hard for a shepherd to guard against false teaching if the shepherd cannot counter it with godly teaching. Because there's a whole lot of false teaching out there. Whatever your heart desires, whatever your itching ears want to hear, there is certain to be somebody out there providing exactly that message. Just sometimes the truth isn't what we want to hear, but the truth is what God wants to give us because there's life in truth. So what's the role of the teacher? The role of the teacher is to preach Christ. It is someone who can take God's word and open it up in a way that helps the saints to understand God's word, to help them to know Christ better and to understand how we should live our lives according to God's word. Now, that's what I'm doing now. Um, my main role in the church is as a shepherd and a teacher. My job is to love you. Now, that's really hard, I want you to know. <laughs> my, my job is to love you and to care for you and to help you and to equip you to be a minister of God. It is to encourage you to grow in Christ and in the knowledge and the love of God. It is to encourage you to maintain fellowship in the wider Christian church and at the same time to help you to recognise good teaching and to distinguish it from bad. Now that doesn't mean I'm the source of all knowledge. It just means that's the role that I believe God has given me. So I've already said today's reading is about growing up. It's about maturing in Christ. What does a mature Christian look like? Is it based on age? And so if you look really old, if you're like Roy or John here, I'm allowed to say I'm allowed to say Roy because it was only it was only last time we met here after church. Roy reminded me. He said, "He said, do you realise I?" It's just occurred to me again, I'm the oldest one here. And I said, yep, that's okay, Roy, and we're glad you're here. So, and, and you're, you're a grandpa, so I can, I can call you old, that's all right. 
You, it's Father's Day today and for you it's Father's Day squared. But, um, so if you look really, really old, does that mean that you're a mature Christian? Um, and if you look really, really young like, like my wife, um, does that mean that you're an immature Christian? No. So what are the attributes of a mature Christian? What, what makes us mature? Well, this isn't a comprehensive list, it's just one that I've pulled out of today's reading. The attributes of a mature Christian here are humility, gentleness, patience. Mature Christians bear with one another in love. Mature Christians are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. These things tell me that mature Christians grow together as a body. They grow together as a family. And it's about living in such a way as to maintain our togetherness in Christ. Now this is really important. To maintain our togetherness in Christ is a sign of of Christian maturity. I'm going to be bold here and say you will not find a mature Christian who does not meet with other Christians. You won't find a mature Christian who doesn't seek regular fellowship with other Christians because that's one of the elements of Christian maturity. They eagerly desire unity. Now, I've heard it said so often, oh look, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, no, you don't. But if you're a mature Christian, you will be fellowshipping with other Christians. But here's some more attributes of a mature Christian. And these ones relate more to the essence of faith, the essence of what we believe. Mature Christians have a unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That means together as a body, we believe the same stuff. And that's one of the reasons the church is divided at the moment because we we don't believe the same stuff. Although more often it's at a denominational level rather than a local level. Uh, Liberal theology throws around the phrase unity and diversity and and they say, you know, you can believe what you like, we can all believe something different and in our diversity of belief we have unity. Now, I've got a one word comment on that. I think I might have used this theological word before, uh, codswallop. You know that word? It's a theological term used to describe an untruth. Codswallop. Mature Christians have a unity of faith. They believe the same things. When the apostles talk about unity and diversity, they're not talking about a unity of faith, they're talking about a unity of gifts. It's like we're all one body. So I have a hand, I have an arm, I have an elbow, I have a shoulder. All different parts and they're all doing different things. And in the church, some are evangelists, some are apostles, some are uh, are shepherds, some are teachers. Some have the gift of giving, some have the gift of mercy, some have gifts of compassion. 
God has given all of us different gifts, but together we are bind together in a unity of faith, a unity of belief. What we hold and know as true. It's a unity of destiny, what we, we're destined to become in Christ. And this unity of faith is to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means we're constantly yielding ourselves to Christ to grow more and more Christ-like. Mature Christians are no longer swayed by false doctrine. Uh, Doctrine is just beliefs, by the way. Uh, They are able to recognise human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes and they speak the truth in love. At this point, I'm coming back to answer the question that that I um, avoided at the beginning. Why, when I believe that unity is so important, why in practice there are times for a church in the positive to to be reborn and renewed and reinvigorated and revitalised or in the negative, to split. And at this stage, in accordance with verse 15, I pray by the grace of God for the Christian maturity to speak the truth in love. Mature Christians will not be swayed by false doctrine. Mature Christians can recognise human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes that try and take us away from, from God's truth and God's will and purpose for our lives. And as you and I grow together in Christ, as we study God's word, as we are trained by the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, we can expect to become one of those who are not swayed. We can expect to become those who do recognise when the devil is attempting to to lead us astray, to lead us away from godliness. But the thing is, we're not all born mature Christians. Our children may not yet be mature Christians. My desire is to be part of a church with a heap of brand new Christians, people who are just coming to faith in Christ, people who are being snatched from the fire, saved to eternal life in Christ. Does anybody else have that desire? You can put your hand up if you do. Yeah, I, have a, I see a few hands like this. Does anybody have that desire? Really, truly? Yeah. Now these people, these new, immature Christians are just beginning their training in maturity. These people might be teenagers or they might be old codgers. But new or even old, immature Christians are more easily swayed by false doctrine. And they don't so easily recognise deceitful schemes. So what is a shepherd to do? Lord, give me grace to speak the truth in love.
A shepherd's role is to guard the flock. Now, I'm an ex-sheep man and there's one sheep man here. That's about it. Oh, we've got a sheep family over here. <laughs> um, the wild dog problem in the Boulogne Shire is worse than it ever has been before. There once was a time when wool and mutton were the staple economy of the whole region. All the farmers were sheep cockies with just a few cattle about to make their diet a bit more interesting. Is that a fair description of the past? Pretty much. That was before I came here. Wild dogs, dingoes, kill sheep by the dozens, by the hundreds, by the thousands. Uh, It's a real problem. And they don't just kill and eat, they kill for fun. When everybody had sheep, it was everybody's problem. And so every shepherd did his bit to protect the sheep and to keep the wild dogs out of the district. No dingoes allowed. Um, the very first, um, one of the first trips I ever had out Bolan Way when I arrived in here, I, I knew that no dingoes were allowed because I went past the Bidgeon Bar sign and there hanging on the Bidgeon Bar sign was a bunch of dogs. Uh, all you've got to do is, these days is drive to Toowoomba and you'll see them on, is it Hollymount? Sign, there's a heap of them somewhere there. Fifteen now. But then the wool industry crashed and the cattle industry boomed and a lot of people didn't worry so much anymore because, you know, cattle aren't affected as much as sheep, are they, John? No, that's right. Um, And some people now, and so the dogs have bred up. And some people have found that they've had to give up sheep altogether because there's just so many dogs ripping their flock apart, literally. Now, that's the state of the Boulogne Shire at the moment and that's why they're spending so much time and effort and money across the Shire to try and control these wild dogs. Now, let me take this analogy, another massive step away from reality and into fantasy. Okay. Imagine if instead of controlling the wild dogs, the council started breeding them up and releasing them. Imagine if the good shepherds out there were doing their best to control the dogs, but the hierarchy were the source of them, breeding them up and letting them out amongst the sheep. What is a shepherd to do? I think we'd leave that shire and go to another one. We'd put up a massive dog fence and make sure that nobody from the shire set foot in it so that we could keep our local flock together. I'd, I'd build a place of safety where the sheep could be sheep and the flock could grow. Now when I bring this analogy to the church, do you understand what I'm saying? When ungodly teaching and hollow deceptive theology, when human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes are not guarded against by the hierarchy, but become the ways of a denomination, when they become the tools of trade of its leaders, when they become the content of its publications and the substance of its worship, Basically, when those who are supposed to be shepherds become wolves, what is one to do? 
where there is no unity of faith, when we believe different stuff with the denomination that is over us, what is one to do? When one speaks the truth in love and is howled down and branded as intolerant and opinionated, what is one to do? Christian unity must include unity of faith, unity of belief. We must believe the same things. We must believe the same about Jesus Christ and about what he calls us to. I left the denomination I was in because there was no unity of faith between the denomination and the congregation. I believe God's desire is for there to be Christian unity in this town. And my hope and my prayer is that that will happen in my lifetime. I want to see it. My hope and my prayer is that all faithful Christians in this district would eagerly desire unity enough to be able to shake off whatever bonds they have that's keeping that unity from happening. And those bonds could be be, um, being tied to traditions, being tied to empty religion, being tied to wolvish shepherds. So that we could just grow together in Christ as one body eagerly desiring godly unity. This is what it means to build ourselves up together in love. Paul is urging the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to become mature Christians, eagerly desiring unity so that the body builds itself up together in love. And remember, the body isn't just one little local fellowship. The body is the body of Christ in this locality. I do not believe we should consider it as being being built up denomination by denomination as we build ourselves up. I believe that it means the Christian church growing in love, in faith, in truth, in unity, in Christ. This is our holy calling. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for the Christian church in St George and and in this district. Lord, put into our hearts an eager desire for unity. Lord, search us and if there be anything in us which is a barrier to this unity, Lord, if it is not of you, take it away. Lord, we thank you for the apostles. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for the evangelists. 
thank you for the shepherds. We thank you for the teachers. Lord, help us to learn from them and to grow together in Christ. Lord, help us to recognise godly shepherds and godly teachers that together we may grow and be equipped for Christian ministry in this district. Lord, you have shown us that we're all part of the body. But sometimes each part of the body isn't working properly. The body has become disjointed and separated. The body has become dismembered and parts of it have gone rotten. It's gone gangrenous. Lord, build your church. We pray for real unity. We pray for righteous unity. That each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, give us love for one another. Lord, give us love for other Christians in this town. Make us one, Lord. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.